This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. My guests are Jack Russell and Glenda Otto. Jack Russell is an author, executive coach, mentor, and organizational training instructor. Jack created this self-sustaining leadership model that we'll be talking about back in 1997 as the fulfillment of a lifelong quest to discover a 21st century model to help create holistic and morally courageous leaders for our time. Glenda Otto is a career transition consultant, coach, and trainer working with people in higher education, business, state government, and private practice. She thrives on working with people who are clarifying and deepening their vocation and reinventing their careers. She's taught at Norwich University, the University of Vermont, and Champlain College. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Thank you. What I would like to begin with is how did each of you get into this work and were there any particular experiences in your lives that inspired this? Chad, why don't you go ahead? Okay. From my earliest memories, I've been very observant of people. And I grew up overseas. My dad was in the foreign service. And I grew up in developing countries where there was extreme poverty. And at the same time, in several of the countries, there was what we called communist insurgencies. So I saw extreme poverty. I saw extreme violence. And, you know, I saw the suffering and knew that there had to be a better way of living. And so as I grew up, I became a keen observer of people and began to learn about leadership. And I've studied from the early days of leadership. I've studied most all of the models. I've observed people. I've served in the military. I worked down in Washington, D.C., where I was able to observe very, very senior people, both in the corporate, nonprofit, and government work. And I've led organizations. And all along, I kept seeing people that had everything going for them. You know, they had great education, great opportunities. They were in 
positions of great power. And I went and follow them across the street. There were others that I thought were fantastic, and I totally would follow. I also met individuals that society deemed as losers. They didn't have much of an education, and they were incredible leaders. I was in awe of them. And so this was always a question in my mind. And I came to the conclusion that leadership has nothing to do with positions of power and authority in organizations at all. And so I I just kept searching. I'm a Vietnam vet. And in the late 80s, part of a Vietnam vet therapy group, and I came to realize that I had PTSD. And the therapist also said, well, you'll learn to manage it, but you won't be healed of it. And I was just, I refused to hear that. And I just said, no, I'm just going to love the hell out of myself. And I meant that literally because I had a sleep disorder. I had an anger problem and I had other symptoms and it was hell. You know, being afraid to go to sleep every night is not fun. And over the years, I also learned that to be fully human is to be able to express emotions and to be vulnerable. Well, that just, that was a hard one. Uh, That was a hard one for all of us. It just wasn't what warriors did or what men tended to do. But I realized I needed to go there. And I met a a woman and we married, her name is Susan Rudine, and she was all about emotions. And so she helped me tremendously about learning about how to express emotions and build my vocabulary. Uh, I had never, I didn't have an, an emotion vocabulary. And then in 2000, I started working with the early childcare profession and no one told me it was all women. And so it was my first experience teaching all women. I realized that we weren't connecting. I I taught the first leadership classes for the state of Vermont. And at the first class, I realized after that we had not connected and that it was my job to be the one to cross over that bridge. So the uh, next class, I told a, a little story that happened in Vietnam that really was part of my PTSD. And I had only shared it with the the folks in the the therapy group and my wife. I had never shared it with anybody else. And I shared it. It was a tremendous vulnerability to me. And I noticed that while I was talking, my hands started shaking and I began to break out into a sweat. And after I finished, uh, we took a break because I had to go out and pull myself together. And when I came in, you know, some of the uh, women hugged me and others thanked me. And that was the beginning of my connecting with what I call this great secret society called women. And I had been accepted. And that was sort of the beginning of, of just a tremendous learning and journey. And it was about that time I also had developed my own leadership model. I realized that the leadership models of the past hundred plus years, mostly written by men and really aligned to organizational hierarchies, didn't work very well. And 
So I had developed my own, I call it a quantum leadership model. It's a holistic approach. And so that that's really sort of the background of what got things started. And I'll leave it there. If I were to say who I am in one sentence, I'd say, I am someone who chooses to love myself and others no matter what. And I didn't come by that easily. That's, you know, it was in my 50s that I started saying things like that. I would say the golden thread running through my life is that I've wanted to get to know God. That's really how I come by this work. And I know not everyone comes in that way, but that's the way it's been for me. All my life decisions, my work, my marriage, career, where I live, all of that has been based on a relationship that I call by many names. It's a relationship with existence, the life itself, God, source, truth, love. And that's a primary relationship for me. And, you know, as Jack talked about his experience with pain, you know, I've certainly known pain, experiencing losses at childbirth, divorce, living on the edge financially, conflict within our family, health issues. But if I were to lift up one thing that has, you know, that informed my whole life from four years old on into my 60s, it was that I had a persistent belief that I was alone in the world. Even with a loving relationship with God, I was living out of the belief that I'm alone in the world. And because of that, I was suffering and I was in constant fear. At 76, where I am now, I look back and by the time I met Jack, I was 63 then, I could clearly state what I said to you. Who I am is I choose to love myself and others no matter what. And I was confronting the fear, the belief within me that I was alone in the world and seeing that it was just not true. I was becoming experienced in being able to shift my habitual limited thought and return to love. And I knew Jack and I were on a similar journey. In my first marriage, I told my husband, marriage for me is about learning to love. Unfortunately, I wasn't clear enough at that time to know that I needed a spiritual partner, someone who really wanted to learn about loving day to day. And as I got to know Jack, I realized he was intent on practicing love every day in all aspects of his life. And so we've been together 12 years. And after five years, I said, okay, you know, this is a spiritual partner. We've been married for seven years, and we're learning about loving every day. And there's something about that that is so life-giving and is the basis of our work together and creating the courses and the workshops that we do. You know, for four years, I worked with IBM in the early 2000s when they were laying off you know, hundreds of people at a time. And I was fortunate to be somebody who was working with those people. And, you know, they're very sharp people. 
And they were wondering what to do next. And some of them wanted to create their own business. And because I had worked in my private practice in career transition, I had a process for them. And I saw people designing their own work. I saw them making good choices about a match for them in terms of working with a not-for-profit or a business. And so after that, the focus of my own work became working with people 45 to 65 and recreating, reinventing their lives and redefining their skills toward doing what they loved. And it was doing that deep work of consciously deciding who they were and what they wanted to do. And now that's what I'm doing full time with Jack, sharing what I know, you know, from my life and work experience. So how did you make that shift or how did that shift occur from that sense of being alone to connecting with that sense of love and connection that you had always been seeking? You won't be surprised. I got myself into a crisis situation where I was being fired from where I worked. And I really had to look at myself. And what came up was that story, that old story that had dismissed all my life about I'm alone in the world. Come on, Glenda, you're not alone in the world. You know, you're grown up. And remember, that was from when you were a child. And I said, you know what? I am operating out of that. I have a choice, you know, really hadn't made a deep choice to decide to live out of love, but I was living out of fear and I, I just saw it so clearly. And it was a crisis moment. But at that time, I was practiced enough about seeing love in every aspect of my life that when I got fired, I said, okay, here you are. This is a chance for you to learn about loving. Come on, let's go. And, you know, just trusting and surrendering into that deeper love that was there. I can totally, totally relate to that. I had a similar kind of experience, my own, around the age of 50. That was the age. Yeah. When a a relationship that I felt this was it and it fell apart and it was devastating, incredibly painful. And I, I completely fell apart. And I remember at one point coming to this realization that I, I didn't want to let anything in this world caused me to shut my heart down. Mm -hmm. And I learned the kind of work that you teach over 40 years ago and practiced it in a community for a number of years, but I was very young at the time and it's taken me all of my life to integrate that. I'm a slow learner. (laughs) Well, I think we're all slow learners when it comes to, I think we all want and we all need to love and be loved, but we just don't know how to do it. And in fact, what we've learned how to do is just the opposite of that. You know, we've, we've learned to judge and react and criticize. Those are the things that destroy relationships, but those are the things we know how to do because we see it going on all around us. Yeah. Our culture teaches us to live 
a life based on separation, fear, and scarcity, essentially. Yep. And it's really hard to buck the tide of that level of emotional experience. Yeah. We knew as we were writing this workbook, and as we do the work we do, that we're not working with an easy crowd, you know, these days. Here we are saying, here's a workbook of skills that you can use. Loving is a skill. What is that? (laughs) And love can be such a loaded, hackneyed word with so many connotations. And we live in an often cynical, decidedly secular world. We're much more reactive than we are loving. So, you know, what we're talking about, Tony, is agape, universal love, spiritual love. And how many people identify with that? We're aware that what we're offering can be just easy turnoff for many. And yet, for those who these days who genuinely want to learn about loving, when they run into us, when we run into them, they run into something real and genuine, and they find kinship with others who are genuinely wanting to learn how to love and who are already committed to loving. And it can be like home, coming home. So for those of <laughs> those who I'm speaking to are already committed to loving, it's time to come together and do the work, uh, the inner work and the outer work of loving that our time is demanding. Mm-hmm. Back over 40 years ago, I learned to do that. And I was living that way in this community. However, the outside world and the effects it was having on me completely knocked me off kilter when I went yeah. out into that world and you know tried to relate to the people in that world and the circumstances that that everyone was creating together. And I couldn't live that kind of love out in the world because <laughs> it wasn't an environment that I wanted to live in or that I wanted oh. to be a part of. Yeah, thank you. So with that in mind, how do you work with a world that isn't in alignment with like your core values and the love that you're talking about and the kind of love-based leadership that you're talking about? You alluded to it earlier in that saying that we aren't taught to be connected. We're taught to be separate to feel isolated and consequently lonely and all that. And it's pathological. It's a pathological dis-ease. Maslow talked about it in the 60s. And others have written about it, that it is not natural. In my study of the quantum mechanics or quantum physics, and the quantum, I I don't know the math and I'm not into it. But it's the only science where every theory has been proven spot on. And there are two that really caught my attention. One, that all reality is connected, or they use the word entangled. But it's, we're all connected, and yet we're taught to be separate. And so that separation is really an old paradigm that's 400 years old, developed by Descartes and and Newton. And progressed by Freud, that we're all separate, but we aren't. 
we're all connected. And the other is that whenever an object is observed, both the object and the observer are changed instantly. In other words, there's no such thing as objectivity. So every thought, we're all connected in a web of life. Now, how do we carry that out into everyday life and everyday working? The other thing I, I noticed, I, I was in a meeting one time, you know, one of these endless meetings that you know we all know of. And theoretically, we were supposed to be collaborating and, and working on a solution. But all of a sudden, I realized that what I was seeing was fear and love at work. That what came out at times were hidden agendas or I'm right. People were attacking each other. Well, that's fear talking. But when I saw people being open and curious, that's love. So I realized that all actions are motivated by either fear or love. And that my job is to meet each individual where they are, not where I want them to be. And if they're in fear, then I need to meet them there and acknowledge it. In other words, to walk with them as opposed to being at each other. Leadership is about relationships. Leadership is about heart-to-heart connection. And that heart-to-heart connection can be with anyone and everyone. I practice it when when I go get a pizza or when I'm... uh, coaching a senior you know, president of an organization, or when I'm with a child, or when I'm with a homemaker. It doesn't matter. It's that heart-to-heart connection. If we connect with the heart, the mind will follow. Management is about the mind. It's about systems. Management is about how to maximize, using systems, how to maximize outcomes, productivity. Uh, How do you maximize the use of resources? So what you have, for instance, you have human resource departments saying people are our greatest assets. I am not an asset. People are not assets. They are the lifeblood. They are the spirit of an organization. It requires a different heart set to connect and maximize that relationship. You know, I've been, you know, I was an infantry officer and a paratrooper. I served as an advisor in Vietnam. I've been a small business person. I've taught. I've coached everything. Every instance, I learned to practice connecting with the people I was with. You know, I might use language that was appropriate. You know, I would dress in a way that was appropriate. That didn't bother me one way or the other. But the idea was, how do I connect with this person and engage with them? So I can do that wherever I am because it's about skills. And if I truly want to connect, then it's not about me. It's about we. And that's the other thing about the quantum. The quantum doesn't talk about you know, a bunch of little individuals like pool balls bouncing off of each other. And what I, what we've learned is, as I know we, I know me. As I know me, I know we. That's about we. There is no 
them or those people. We are all connected, all of us. And it's only our fear and our ignorance and our own limitations that keep us separate and in conflict with each other. And so, you know, leadership is really about how do I connect heart to heart? And then it takes skills to do that. And when we talk about love, we're not talking about emotions, emotional love, you know, the romantic love can come through that. We're not talking about the psychological. To me, it goes back to the quantum. It's all connected. And the purpose of love, one of the purposes of love is to sustain connection. It is a law, it's a power, it's an energy that is just as real as the ocean tides or the winds or gravity. And it's present. It just is. You've experienced it. And uh, it's just learning the skills on how to, it begins with me. I've been doing a great deal of work on what is fear. You know, I know what the physical fear is. You know, it's that sense of physical threat to your well-being or your life. And that's one type of fear. But there are three other types of fears that we don't really look at. And one is reactive fear. And that's based on our beliefs, our values, our biases, our prejudices, our trauma, and they're reactive. You know, they come out in reactive ways. Another fear is existential. It can be called an anxiety because there's no object or thing for that fear. But it comes down to what's my purpose in life? What happens when I die? What we hear from countless people, especially women, because we work primarily with women. At a certain age, they suddenly say, is this all there is to life? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? You know, Tillich, the the great theologian of the past century, back in the 50s said, you know, we live in an age of existential crisis. And that's only heightened in recent years. And I think the greatest fear is the fear of knowing ourselves. We, at an early age, we create these masks that we hide behind, you know, and we do anything and everything to protect those masks. We don't want to look behind them because we're afraid of what we might find. I think that's the greatest fear that there is. And it takes... You know, one of the things I've learned, I can only love another to the degree that I love myself. And to love myself is to know myself, is to know what is it that's influencing my behavior? What's motivating my behavior? You know, so much of our world is based on, well, if you change your behavior, you're going to be fine. Many of the leadership theories are based on, here are 10 different things to do. If you do this, these things, you'll be a good leader. It's behavior-based. Our schools, we learn, it's all about behavior. But until we get to the causes of that behavior, we're never truly going to change it. And that's where self-knowing comes in. And in order to do that, it requires self-love. And then with that, I'm able to meet and love people where they are, not where I want them to be. So there you are. 
I'm actually very good at connecting with some people comes very naturally, but then I experience some people that I feel an aversion to, and I don't feel drawn to connecting with them. And I'm wondering, do you still encounter yourself having fear-based responses to others or a resistance to connecting with some people? Oh, yeah. When we talk about self-sustaining leadership and self-knowing and growing moral courage and our capacity, it's a lifelong journey. I, you know, I've been at this for a long time and Glenda has too. And we both feel like we, we've just started, but we make progress, a little progress every day. It's not trying to run a marathon while we're still learning to walk. Uh, so that's loving ourselves. Now, there are individuals, you know, I would agree that I just go, I just don't want anything to do with them. You know, and that's okay. But I've been many times, I've been with people that I really initially just, I go, oh, I really don't want to be with this person, but I have to be with that person. And so I use my skills to engage them where I can and to meet them where they are. When I was exploring what love is, I picked up, I was on a beach, long sandy beach, and I picked up a handful of sand and I said, what do I really know about love? What are the qualities of love that I know? And I let the sand go until I had about four or five grains of sand. And I looked at the beach and I said, love is infinite. There are infinite qualities. But I only know maybe three, four, or five. And I went at it and I came up with a list of over 128 qualities and values of love. I realized that there was no way I was going to be able to focus on those. And so what I, for myself, is I work with four. And it begins with compassion, you know, loving myself, and then also then I'm able to love others. It's compassion, and compassion means deep empathy. You know, I need to live into the experience of this person to the degree possible. Along with that, a deep desire to end the suffering or to heal it for myself to help with the other person. That's what compassion is for me. The other is patience. How patient are we with ourselves as opposed to? beating up on ourselves. The other one is gratitude. How am I grateful for all that I have as a start? But how about gratitude for who I am? Each person is unique. There never has been, and there is no one right now, there never will be anyone like you, like me. We are unique. I strive to find uniqueness, but it begins with me. I can only love others to the degree I love myself. And, you know, there's a, a, I don't know if you've ever heard of a Mobius strip. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. For those listeners, if you take a strip, like a ribbon or a strip of paper, and you join the two ends, that's a circle. But if before you join them, you turn one and 180 degrees, and then join them, that's a Mobius strip. And if you trace, it goes in, 
and then out. And that's how love works. I receive it, I express it. It's an ongoing flow, and it's our fear that interrupts that flow. The Mobius strip quality is that they are totally connected. There's no separation. Absolutely. You got it. There's no separation between us. You know, one of the things we've heard on the news is how young people, you know, starting at infants, toddlers, all the way up through in their early 20s, are feeling, you know, this tremendous anxiety. They're feeling isolated. They're feeling a lack of identity, a lack of belonging, all of it. That's the world that we live in. Connection is normal. Separation is abnormal. And it's that simple. (laughs) But it's also very complicated (laughs) because, as you said, we're all interconnected, but we're interconnected whether we like it or not. Correct. Isn't that great? (laughs) It's wonderful and it's terrible at the same time. It's like we're living in this world that we're observing literally falling apart before our eyes due to an exponentially, a seemingly exponentially increasing sense of polarization and fear of each other. And yet, as you point out, We are all interconnected and we're all in this together. And I think we're coming, some of us at least are coming to realize that the only way we're going to survive is if we find a way for all of us to come together and agree to want to survive and to do it together because we are in the same boat. And yet what's happening these days is that we're too busy trying to destroy, you know, the other side of the boat that the other people are in without realizing that we're destroying our own boat as well. Yeah, I think an example of this, for me, a couple of things. One, when I was in Vietnam, I was an advisor and I wasn't out in the jungle. I was with the Vietnamese people and I spoke some of the language. And because I grew up in other cultures, I didn't see, yes, we were different, but I didn't see that anybody was better than the other. We were just people. Trying to, trying to go about our lives. And I quickly learned that it was the women that ran the country. And if we look around, we find that in a lot of cultures. And once I realized that, I made friends with the women. And once they realized that I respected them, that I honored them, that I listened to them, and that I was curious, openly curious about them. They adopted me and they called me little brother and they laughed about it because I was, you know, I'm 6'2 and they were about 5'1". But I, I was safe. I felt safer with them than I did around Americans. And I was under orders, you know, we were under standing orders to carry a weapon. I carried a pistol. But after a while, I realized that my safety wasn't dependent on a firearm. It was about relationships. And the firearm, you know, the weapon was more of an intimidation. And I got to a point where I, I didn't even carry a weapon. You know, there were certain areas where I, when I went to, I, I carried one, just it was prudence there. 
But, you know, this whole thing about firearms, here I was in a combat zone, and I felt perfectly safe because of relationships. They knew where I should go and not go. And because of our connection, our heart-to-heart connection, you know, we shared information, and they were the ones who kept me safe. Now I'm going to bring it back to, it's about learning skills. You know, people talk about wars. We have conflicts right here in our community. All you have to do is go to a town meeting or a school board meeting or, you know, a a select board meeting on something. Or you go into families. (laughs) You You know, I can't end the war over in Europe or in Afghanistan or any place, but I can end conflict in my own family. I can work towards ending conflict at town meetings or school board meetings or in the boardrooms or in the state legislature or wherever. But it takes skills and it takes a willingness to learn those skills and practice them. You know, we we learn how to drive a car. I don't know anyone who jumped in a car and did it perfectly the first time out. Well, it's the same way with the skills that we teach that are outlined in our book. It takes practice and being willing to have the humility and the openness and the curiosity to learn and to practice and to continually making improvements. You know, Tony, Jack earlier talked about qualities of love, compassion, patience, gratitude, and well, well, the other one is forgiveness. forgiveness. I forgot one. Yeah, is learning to forgive myself when I screw up. <laughs> and the more I hear Jack talk about its skills, I'd like to talk about four skills that we work with that are most exciting to me. We call them the bedrock skills because they're foundational skills for all that we do. And Those skills include self-love, observation without judgment, deep reflective listening, and asking powerful questions. And we get to work with people who want to learn about loving. So, I mean, then that's, do, do people really want to learn? Because if they want to learn, they're hungry, particularly to learn about self-love, self-loving, you know, where, where this begins. So we put a course together called self-coaching and that course forced us to identify, you know, just bedrock skills. And I'm going to focus on that first one, self-love, but it's really, what's really exciting when we experience all these skills working together. So I'll refer to all the skills as I talk about self-love. So what do we mean by self-love? I'm going to lift a passage from the self-love basics in the workbook. It goes like this. Self-love is about embracing yourself with the same empathy, patience, kindness, support, and playfulness you'd offer a good friend. And as, as with a friend, your deepest desire is to be with yourself. Self-love has to do with breathing new life into your own being, allowing yourself time 
to pause and take a deep breath of fresh air, allowing time for a shift of perspective, allowing time to remember who you are, who you want to be. Self-love is a journey that takes practice and skill. And although there's a definite feeling aspect to self-love, the love we're describing is not an emotion, rather it's a choice. It's a conscious choice. It's a decision. It's an action. It's an ongoing spiritual practice. We call it being love in action with an emphasis on being. You know, as, as Jack said earlier, we can only love others to the extent that we can love ourselves. And we used the term self-love in a workshop recently, and someone said, loud enough for everybody here, Self-love, that's the hardest part. And we all laughed because we knew exactly what she meant. But we take a decisional stance to start from a place of love in coaching and in leadership. And what does that mean? What does self-love look like? I begin with the intent to connect with myself, become still within, become present, become ready to listen. That's the deep listening part. I start with becoming open and curious about myself. Imagine that. I choose to be present with my own habitual thought and reaction. I'm going to allow that I have reactions. I'm going to receive them without judging. There's that observe without judging part. I'm going to notice the limiting beliefs and stories. I keep telling myself as though they're true. I can't do this. I'm alone here. Nobody cares. I don't matter. Do most of us start from self-love? Well, no. It's just the opposite. We've been educated to do, and we, what we know how to do is judge, react, blame, shame, criticize, You know, tell people what to do, beat up on ourselves. That's where most of us start, and that's all fear-based. But with self-love, I remember, whoa, wait a minute, I have a choice. I can react out of habit, do what I've always done, or I can begin to notice what I'm thinking. Again, self-observation. I catch in the moment what's going on, you know, this self-talk going on in my mind. And I become willing to interrupt these old habits of thought. And take a pause, you know, and just breathe, give myself time and space to ask things like, what's going on with me? You know, this is the powerful questions part. What am I saying to myself? What's going on in my body? What am I noticing about my feelings and beliefs in this moment? You become this one that can observe oneself from a place of love. You know, and why would we do all that? I'm giving myself the chance to make new, more conscious, more loving choices. You know, explore new options. I'm giving myself a loving lens to look at the situation. You know, what does it mean to love in this situation? I'm giving myself space and time to shift to a better place and different mindset, different energy. I just say in closing here that a child's definition for love, I've heard this, um, a child's definition for love 
is time and attention. I love that when I heard that. What this is, is me giving myself time and attention, valuing my life, listening to myself, taking responsibility for how I'm creating my own experience in this moment. For me, this is self-love. This is self-intimacy. And if I were teaching a course right now, I'd be stopping and inviting a conversation about self-love because, you know, those who are attracted to this work are people who want to learn more about loving. And we can talk about what we've learned, what we're learning about self-love. Yes, I was reading Self-Sustaining Leadership and about self-love. It occurred to me that, you know, there's this current trend towards talking about being present in the moment. And it became clear to me, it's really hard to be present in the moment when we don't love ourselves, because if we don't love ourselves, we don't want to be present in the moment with ourselves, because that's where we are. We are with ourselves. (laughs) And most of us don't want to be with ourselves. And that Mm -hmm. makes it almost impossible to be Mm. present in the moment. Yeah, we're very resistant to it. And we're, we just don't even know how resistant we are. We just don't, we can't notice ourselves not wanting to be with ourselves. We find some way to avoid that, you know, watch TV, eat something, you know, anything, but being willing to check in with ourselves. But we learned to not love ourselves because when we first came into the world, we were little bundles of love and joy and something going on in the world around us convinced us otherwise somehow. Yeah. There have been studies that have shown that throughout the world, in every culture, we come into this world with innate values. And if we look at those values, they're all qualities and values of love. It's our primary and our secondary caregiver's job to help us on how to live those values or not. (laughs) And therefore, we get, it's a mixed bag. And in my work on what is morality, more often than not, what I hear is, well, it's different for everyone. You know, it's a gut feeling. Well, how has that worked for us? Not very well. And so... My graduate work is in philosophy and and theology. And I've read all the, you know, what the great thinkers over the centuries have said. And, you know, what I came down to, it's the golden rule. But it's not, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. That's flawed. But it's, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, what I find people will say, well, I'm sure I'm loving my neighbor. You know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And then I say, well, how are you doing for yourself? Not very well. Actually, I don't like myself very well. And then they go on about that. So what I've said, you know, that the moral imperative, and I've, I've reversed it, it can go either way. I treat myself with the same compassion, respect, and dignity as I treat others. Or it can be, I treat others with the same compassion, respect, and dignity 
as I do myself. And I've defined compassion, respect is open curiosity without judgment, which is one of the first bedrock skills, observation without judgment. It's open curiosity so that I can hear and see the uniqueness of this individual that I'm with. And it begins with me. The other is needs that we haven't talked about. We all have fundamental needs and we've aligned them to connection. That when these needs are met, we're connected. We're connected with the world, we're connected with others, we're connected with ourselves, we're connected with the essence of the universe. And one of the the fundamental needs of being with someone else is to be heard, to be valued, and to be honored, and to feel emotional and physical safety. We don't practice that very well. And I'll give you an example. For years, I was the uh, chair of the planning commission here in Calais. You know, we'd come up with regulations, development regulations, and so on. And there was a lot of controversy, you know, and different thoughts about it. Uh, we had a woman come one time, and she was fired up. And after I welcomed her, I said, go for it. And she just let loose about something to do with the regulations and how it affected her and her property and so on. And like I said, she was fired up. When it was over, you know, I thanked her and I said, I'm hearing your frustration, your anger, and your discouragement. She reared back in her chair and she looked at me and she said, thank you. Finally, someone has heard me. And I went, Definitely. I definitely heard you. And I said, shall we begin to talk about what your concerns are? She said, no, I just wanted to be heard. And she got up and left. How many of us, when we go to meetings or someone says something and we begin to refute or challenge them or agree with them, but move on, we aren't really connecting with each other. We aren't really meeting their needs. I hear your emotions. I hear your concerns. Thank you. You know, it can be that simple. (laughs) It really is. The other, I was with a a group of women, early childcare workers or teachers at a center. There were 10 women. We had gone through a whole course and it was towards the end. And they were in age from mid-20s to mid-60s. They all had either husbands or partners. Most had children. And, you know, something came up. And I said, how many of you have intimate connection with your partner or spouse? And by intimate connection, I meant how many of you can openly share anything and be heard and honored and valued? How many of you can be express emotions And just have your emotions heard, not try to be corrected or or anything. How many of you, and it meant how many of you can be vulnerable with each other? And I was shocked. Out of 10 women, eight of them said none, no intimate connection. One said on again, off again. And one said yes. 
I heard from a psychologist that does family counseling said that the studies have shown that 85% of women do not have intimate connection in their relationships. And it's about 45% for men. So even in where there should be, you know, the most intimate connection, there isn't. You know, that the vast majority of relationships are functioning. And there's in some cases, I would say barely functioning. You know, they just better the devil that I know than the devil I don't know. In other words, there isn't even in, in these most intimate, you know, where, where there should be love. There isn't. There isn't really love. They're just going through life. You know, it's almost zombie-like. So the opportunity is really to begin in our, you know, I can't heal Ukraine, but I can work on my relationship with my wife, with my children, with the people I work with, my planning commission, with myself. But it takes skills to do it. And you have to be willing to do it. The other thing I've learned, we've learned, is there are two ways that a person is willing to do this. One, if they are already loving and they're willing to learn more, you know, more skills on how to go deeper and to expand how to do it, or to be in a lot of pain. And that's where a lot of our folks come from, mostly women, and they are in a lot of pain. And our job you know, is to help them with these skills so that one, they can claim the power that they were born with and you know, take over the world. You know, men have had several thousands of years at it and we haven't done very well. I'm up for letting the women do it. Yeah, yeah I, I hear that. I often find that I get along much, much better with women than I do with men. And I'm yeah. much, much more inclined to have deep conversations with women and find that it's very difficult to do that with most men. Most men are terrible listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And this is the shame of it. I really love working with women. And, and it's not all wonderful. People are people. Men, it's like, oh, I got to get through. Okay, you want to be alpha? Go for it. Okay, can we get on with it? This is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. I'm talking with Jack Russell and Glenda Otto, authors and creators of self-sustaining leadership. Or it's about status. I remember I was working down at Norwich and the men that I was working with were all retired officers and they weren't willing to listen. And they were challenging me, you know, like men do. And I remember seeing a, a photo of one of their senior officers there. And we were looking at the ribbons, the medals. And I went, oh, yeah, I've got that one, that one, that one. Oh, he doesn't. I have this. He doesn't have that one. Huh? OK. And I said, and I also had a battalion command and so on. None of them had that experience that I had. A friend of mine that was listening, a retired Navy officer, he told me later, he laughed. He said, Jack, I knew exactly what you were doing. And I knew you really didn't want to do it. And he said, the funny thing is, you have more experience, you know, more of the, the outward successes than they do. 
and yet you talk about love, and it just doesn't compute for them. You know, and, you know, all I could do was laugh. You know, it was sad, and yet, you know, I've led infantry units, and I love. You know, we, we say, oh, the military is very hierarchical, and it is up to a point. But I'll guarantee you, when I was a young officer, I had to earn the trust of my men, and I loved them. They knew that they were very important to me, that their welfare was utmost, and I was willing to sacrifice myself for them. And we connected. And, you know, people said, well, you could order them into battle or whatever. And the thing is, if we were in a combat situation and they didn't trust me, I'd get a job review real fast. They'd kill me. (laughs) You know, it was the ultimate uh, job performance review. They could kill me. They had the means and the opportunity to do it. But in every group that I led, they knew that I cared deeply, not cared about them, because care means taking care of their physical. I would do that. But they knew that I loved them and that I would sacrifice my life so that more of them could come home. And they knew it. And that when it comes to organizations, this whole thing about hierarchy and power, that's not the way the universe works. We each have our roles. You know, my role was, you know, the head of it, you know, but everyone is vital. Who is the most, you know, who's the VIP in the White House? The person who cleans the Oval Office. Without a clean office, things start falling apart. So someone who cleans our offices is a very important person. There is no such thing as a lowly whatever. I always say, you know, God and the worms don't care about our ego stuff. You know, my degrees or my my rank or my position or, or anything. It's really about who we are as human beings and how we relate. That's all that's really important. You know, we don't have to look far for separation. I remember my late wife at one time, she was a Goddard, and I went to Norwich, you know, and we called it sleeping with the enemy. <laughs> but, but at one point, she went to a meeting about the survival of Goddard and uh, knew that Goddard is very peace-oriented. And I knew that Norwich at the time was developing a graduate program for peace. And she brought up, well, why don't you talk to Norwich and, you know, get together? You would think that she was asking them to get in bed with the devil incarnate. Those people? And, you know, she just realized there was not going to happen. But it's about those people. And that's all about fear, ignorance, prejudice, and limitations. And there's no love in that at all. That's how I find to make it practical. But it's all skills-based. And you have to have the humility, the strength of humility to do it, do the work. And the willingness to face our fears. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A day doesn't go by that I don't face my fears. Yeah. And I don't see them as something, um, you know, I, I mentioned my PTSD. Well, a lot of that was based on fear. 
and I was able to heal myself because I was able to learn to love myself more and to face my fear uh, and to to see it for what it for what it was. Could you give us an example of a recent fear or a fear that arose in a situation that was very uncomfortable to deal with and how you worked with it? I had a, a situation when I was doing some coaching at a university and there was someone coming in that the president had said, oh, this person's going to be the dean of students. And, you know, it was the fair haired boy that was coming in. And I was asked to talk to him about leadership, you know, and so I, I did. I shared a copy of my first book with him and, you know, he talked and so on. And then a few months went by and he was being groomed for this position. And for some reason, he, he got into my face a little bit, well, more than a little bit. And he said, hey, when I become dean, you know, you, you aren't going to be needed anymore. You know, I know all about leadership and I don't need your stuff. And fine, you know, whatever. But then somehow it came up that he, you know, he had told me that he would read my book. And it turned out that he lied to me. You know, I was like taken back. He said, no, why, why would I ever read your stuff? And he was being pretty aggressive at me. And I got triggered. And even though I tried to use, you know, nonviolent communication and so on, I got triggered. And, you know, we got eyeball to eyeball, you know, like two rams butting heads. And afterwards, I felt horrible. And it wasn't at him. It was about myself. You know, I really blew it. (laughs) I really did. And I said, okay, this is more about me than it is about him. Why was I triggered? You know, anger is a normal human emotion. That's one of the things I learned going through the vet therapy group. But going from little anger to rage, almost in a heartbeat, that's not normal. Then there's something going on there. And I had learned how to feel my anger growing and knowing, okay, I need to disconnect. Because when you get to a certain point, you're going to go for the kill. You know, it's, you're going for it. And I had gone very quickly into that. And so I had to explore what wasn't, you know, emotions are doorways to causes. What's causing me to have this pretty extreme anger? And I realized it was that he had lied to me. And one of my top values is integrity. Integrity includes honesty. And it is a top value. And values, when you get to your top two or three, you get cornered. They get challenged. You're going to come out fighting in some way, shape, or form. You will not compromise on them. And that's what had happened in that situation. And that's what triggered me. And it was a great aha. Then, so what I did was I said, all right, you're going to keep having these type of experiences until you've learned the lesson. Your intent was to connect. What you did was just the opposite. You reacted. So how can I change my thinking? How can I begin to explore? You know, I I was using the the questions that Glenda brought up. 
What was my intent to connect? What was the emotion? Extreme anger. What was it? It was a value. All right. It's going to happen again. You know it's going to happen again. What are the other options that you can come up with when you're faced with that? And what are the implications of each one? Which one maximizes connection? And it has come up again. And the next time it came up, not with this individual, but you know, it, it comes up again. I was able to go, okay, I know what's going on and I have choices in this situation. And I was able to not have that type of situation happen again. I'm not saying it won't happen, but it all depends on how well I've learned the skill that we're talking about. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. I love examples in action. Glenda? Yes. Do you have anything to offer in that realm? You know, as I listen to Jack, I think, how can I say it in a very succinct way? Um, In our work, we've been fortunate to work with people who are very passionate about doing this work as well. And so we had two women who have both worked very closely with us. And at first, when they met, they really liked each other. And then there came a situation where one offered more than she could deliver and and it broke trust with the other one. And we realized that that was something they were going to have to work out with themselves, that we couldn't get in the middle of that. And so, you know, it's that patience that you have when you know that you can't change either of those people. And yet we had conversations with each of them saying, We're anticipating that you will be working together in the future. And we're looking for you to find a way into love in this. And we trust that you can do that. And then it was a matter of just stepping back and having the patience to wait until each one came to their own willingness to talk with the other. And that time came, they had the conversation. And it was their job to be honest with each other and real with each other, to say how they were disappointed, to say how they were hurt, to say how, you know, it was a breaking of trust. And he had the other one hear it. They were skilled enough to hear each other. And we were talking the other day with one of these women, and she was saying, when I was talking about her in the past, I didn't like her, but, but we've worked through that. And uh, I think we can work together in the future. And I'll add to that. What it took them both was moral courage. And, you know, in in our definition of self-sustained leadership, it's the the growing capacity. Capacity is both the skills and consciousness. And moral courage to do the right thing with the right people at the right time based on increased self-knowing. You know, the question, you know, I've talked about what is morality, but then the question is, what is courage? And I had to really do a lot of exploration on that. You know, I, I know what physical courage is about, but what about moral courage? Here's the moral imperative, but then what's the courage? And I came up with my own definition of courage, and it's when fear collides with love, and love wins. 
So that's what these two women had to do. They were in reaction to each other. In order for them to come together, it took moral courage, and they did it. Renee Brown talks about what moral courage is. You know, she says, okay, the research shows, and it says it's about three things. She talks about vulnerability and courage in the same sentence. Vulnerability is about uncertainty and risk and emotional exposure. That's what they had to do. They had to, without knowing the outcome, risk saying something and expose themselves emotionally and have even the courage to believe that the other person could, or maybe not, but they, they were going to express what it was and trust that the other person could hear in complete uncertainty. And as it happened, they were able to do that, but it required them to be vulnerable. And none of us, <laughs> that's not our first choice to risk and to risk in uncertainty and, and expose ourselves emotionally. But that kind of vulnerability is part of courage. It takes moral courage to be willing to take our masks off mm. <laughs> and get rid of these facades. When we maintain these masks, that's a lack of integrity. There's no integrity, absolutely none there. And there's little love. It takes moral courage to be willing to take our masks off and face our greatest fears, and to be willing to learn you know, the skills. You know, physical courage, you know, we, we honor physical courage, but that's easy. You know, I, I've been there, I've uh, seen it. You know, I, I, I was a paratrooper. I know what it takes to get, you know, leave an aircraft in the middle of the night carrying 100 pounds of equipment, you know, in the middle of the night. Okay, that's physical courage, but we're talking about something completely different. And I would say doing what I did was easy in comparison with what moral courage calls us to do. You know, you brought up earlier about the world we live in. Well, every hundred years, all human systems get changed and we're in that. And it's either through evolution or revolution. And it's our choice. What we're helping people do is practice evolution as opposed to revolution. And uh, it takes moral courage and, and moral courage to say, maybe I do need to learn some skills and knowing that I'm not going to get it right all the time. And to take responsibility for what's most difficult for us inside, like particularly if we have emotional triggers that we still are struggling with that we live in fear of other people either discovering or having them triggering them in us. Oh, yeah. We, we ask people to do that kind of work. We ask people to understand what triggers they're walking around in. <laughs> I was talking to a friend recently who said, my grandchildren, they just knew how to trigger me. And at some point I decided, no, I don't want to live like that because, you know, he's, she's getting triggered all the time. And she said, one by one, she identified what those triggers were. That's deep work. And she said, we get along much better now. The other is 
I would say the vast majority of us have ghosts that haunt us from the past. You know, some call it trauma. And, you know, with my PTSD, I had some ghosts that were really would haunt me. And it was not fun, to say the least. And I decided to work on healing myself. And the way I did it was I went back into those situations and just loved. And, you know, I just realized that love was there. And, you know, it's not about forgetting those situations. It's just they don't haunt me anymore. And they don't influence my relationships today anymore. I just don't. You know, when what Tony, what you're saying about taking responsibility, it's so key. If I'm in the habit of blaming, which is what we've been taught to do, I just don't take responsibility. So one of the things that you know I recommend for people is if you find yourself blaming, that's a wake-up call to do the taking responsibility to own where you are being triggered. The taking responsibility is key. Without that, we don't move on. We just stay in the same circles with ourselves. We just stay stuck. And one of the keys, if you want to see if we're talking at each other as opposed to with each other, if we blame, if we deny, if we excuse, if we attack, if we self-justify, all of those are separation. And they're the very things that John Gottman says, destroy relationships. Those things are designed to destroy relationships. And it's almost as though when you begin to look at the opposite of those, you begin to see that what's required is something more like love. Yeah. And we've been talking about relationships, but relationships is what leadership is about. It's all about relationships. And it begins with myself. And it's also a holistic. I don't have a work life, family life, a community life, a social life, a religious life. I only have a life. I have one life. And it's a flow. And it is about relationships. I can be in a position of authority and love. I can have none. And love. It doesn't matter. And it's about being willing to learn the skills of relationships and connection. And in that, it's health. It's healthy. As opposed to being dis-ease, it's just the opposite of that. And along the way, one of the things that I learned was to have fun and to play. I observed working with early child care the importance of play. And I've done some research on it that many animals play. That's how they learn. And that's how children learn. But at some point, we, you know, we say, no, you're growing up. Stop that. You know, work. That's pathological. That's not healthy. I had to redo myself. I play every day. I have fun every day. It's not optional because it's medicine. <laughs> it's, you know, of all types. You know, life is meant to be fun. Even when there's challenges, you know, you can still find moments of fun and play. I 
would invite people to take a look at the workbook that we've created. It's made up of essays and activities and takeaways that introduce a skill and then have you get some experience in the skill and then reflect on what you just did. And, you know, everybody will respond in their own unique way to doing exercises like this, you know, because everybody has their own life experience. But I invite you to take a skill in this workbook and read the basics and do an activity and reflect on what you're taking away and see what happens. I'm curious what will happen for you. Yeah, I I would second that. I had a a man (laughs) recently that I've been having conversations with. He read it and he was curious. And as he moved through it, he, we were talking and he said, you know, it's simple. The way you've laid it out is so simple. You know, here are the basics. It's almost like bullet points. And then you have the activities and practicing it and the takeaways and the summation of it all. He said, as I was going through it, I went, you know, this is pretty simple. Then he said, he went back and read it again, parts of it. And he said, oh my gosh, it is profound. There is deepness here that blew me away. And we're finding the same thing. You know, we wrote it, but we go back to it on a regular basis and we're learning from it. I'm learning from it all the time. So what we're trying to do is help people to go scuba diving. In other words, to begin to go within yourself. So the first course that we taught is really how to snorkel, how to begin to go below the surface and to explore it, and then put on the scuba gear and go deeper. And what are you going deeper into? Yourself. And the book, The Skills, is really a way to do that is how to begin to do the snorkeling and then the scuba diving. And Glenda and I, you know, we both feel like, you know, we're just starting. You know, we've gotten down to about 30 or 40 or 50 feet, but, you know, there's a lot more to go. And there are times it's scary and other times it's exhilarating. And I say it's a lot of fun. So there we are. Mm -hmm. So how can people find out more about your work? and connect with you if they want to? They can visit our our website. The book is on Amazon. The website, it's selfsustainingleadership.com. Selfsustainingleadership is all one word, dot com. Or if you just Google self-sustaining leadership, I think it brings it up. Mm -hmm. And I want to acknowledge that This work is a lot of fun. I deeply enjoyed doing this work, particularly back in the old days when we did it as a group process, because it's it's actually quite wonderful to be able to make yourself completely vulnerable and expose yourself to everyone and to experience over and over again that people will still love you. They'll listen and they'll care and they will love you no matter what, it reminds me of the person that I've had contact with. He's a, a neuroscientist, and he talks about the big brain question. And what the big brain question is, essentially, is, will you still love me? 
if I am just who I am, basically. Right. No matter yep. what I no matter what I do. Yep. You're spot on on that. And what we do, one of the things is to provide a community of learning and support and adventure where we're able to be vulnerable with each other and to grow and learn and laugh and cry and, and, and do exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, we're working, we have these two other women, one's here in Vermont and the other one's down in New Orleans who are teaching the program. And when like the four of us get together and we talk, you know, we, I love, or, you know, one of them will call me out on something. You know, the way I said something at a class or something. We feel free to do that. And, you know, initially there's like, oh, I didn't see that one. Or, oh, that stung a little bit. But it's done with love. And I am so grateful for it. <laughs> you know, it's just, that's the only way I can change myself and, and grow. They aren't saying, oh, you were bad. You know, no, there's no critical judgment in it. It's just. It's about we more than it's about me. But I find me in the we. And that's what the quantum is about. Mm -hmm. And so it's self-sustaining leadership, self-sustaining. That's the quantum at work. You know, it's that ongoing renewal, you know, the potential that always exists, the constant change and the growing within the boundaries of love. You know, the vast majority of the other leadership models, we need to leave them. You know, I'm grateful for them, but they belong to a different era. Leave them in the rear. Move on. Because they're not going to meet the needs of today, let alone tomorrow. They aren't. They're dead. Let them go. And it seems the key element underlying all of this is the recognition of the essence of the other person what some people might call the divine nature or essential nature of the other person, as well as in ourselves, so that we can connect on that deep, essential level. Absolutely. You know, again, an infant is a leader. Everyone has some capacity and has some moral values in them. So it's getting away from this hierarchical, organizational paradigm that is just doesn't work. It never really did work very well. So it's really saying everyone is a leader. Yeah, I think infants are my favorite leaders. Uh, you <laughs> better believe it. <laughs> well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Well, and we'll continue the conversation. Awesome. It's been fun. And until next time, be well. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Jack Russell and Glenda Otto created this self-sustaining leadership model. Jack Russell is an author, executive coach, mentor, and organizational training instructor. Jack created this self-sustaining leadership model back in 1997 as the fulfillment of a lifelong quest to discover a 21st century model to help create holistic and morally courageous leaders for our time. Glenda Otto is a career transition consultant, 
coach and trainer working with people in higher education, business, state government, and private practice. She thrives on working with people who are clarifying and deepening their vocation and reinventing their careers. She's taught at Norwich University, the University of Vermont, and Champlain College. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.